by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remains at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all of the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is good word for us. Thank you, Josh, for boldly reading all those hard-to-pronounce names. Appreciate that. Um, my name is Larry Trotter. I'm one of the pastors here. Really thankful to be able to, to speak to you all this morning on the opening day of sweater vest season. It's really, really good to be here. So I read a piece uh, this week in the Wall Street Journal, and it states the obvious. The COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc on our social lives. Duh, right? Time spent with friends went down, time spent alone went up. According to the Census Bureau's American Time Use Survey, the amount of time the average American spent with friends was stable at six and a half hours per week between 2010 and 2013. But then in 2014, time with friends began to decline. By 2019, prior to the pandemic, the average American was spending only four hours per week with friends, a sharp 37% decline from five years before. Social media, political polarization, and new technologies all played a role in the drop, they say. But then COVID then deepened this trend to where in 2021, the average American spent only two hours and 45 minutes a week with close friends, a 58% decline relative to the 2010 era. There's a piece in Rolling Stone that adds this caution. It says that the last 20 years has seen a dramatic increase in the suicides of white middle-aged men in the western half of the United States, primarily in rural areas. Poverty and isolation are key factors, with the quick and easy availability of guns facilitating an irrevocable decision. Um, white men account for 70% of all the cases, and the highest rates are in Montana, Alaska, Wyoming, New Mexico, Idaho, and Utah. Dr. Craig Bryan, who studies military and rural suicide at the University of Utah, believes a strong sense of independence and self-reliance is a major cause. He says there's been an increase in the every man for himself mentality. There doesn't seem to be as strong a sense of we're all in this together. It's much more, hey, don't infringe on me. You're on your own and let me do my own thing. You know, today we're going to close out our study of 2 Timothy, and in these last few verses that you just heard read of this letter that Paul wrote to his mentee, Timothy, Paul is going, the great apostle Paul is going to put pen to parchment and write his very last words, literally his very, very last words. And he is going to call us by his own example to buck the pressing trends of isolated friendlessness and self-sufficiency. 
He's going to call us to value and pursue genuine friendship, especially in the church. Paul's thoughts in this section, as you heard, are a bit disconnected here. You've got a greeting here, a request there. This is not a tidy doctrinal argument like we're accustomed to from Paul, but that doesn't mean that he's done teaching us. So I'd like to extract three simple principles from Paul's last, last words that you just heard read. They're about friendship. Here they are. One, you need believing friendships. Two, those friends will fail you. And three, you should be gracious when they do. Let me show you how these play out in Paul's life as he models these for us. First, you need believing friendships. Paul's thoughts at this point turn to some of his dearest friends as he writes these very last words. People like Titus and Tychicus and Luke and Pisgah and Aquila. We read in verse 9 his direct words to his friend Timothy, whom elsewhere calls his son. He's so dear to him. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Do your best. And down again in verse 21, the second to last verse Paul wrote, do your best, Timothy, to come before winter. Paul is longing for the company of his dear friend Timothy, whose friendship he spoke of way back at the beginning of the letter, in the very first chapter, the opening lines with these tender words in verse 4 of the first chapter. As I remember your tears, Timothy, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Now, as you may remember, Paul, as he writes this letter, is in prison, like chains in prison, like in chains in a dungeon in prison, facing a death sentence. Right? He's, he's midstream at this point in a trial by Imperial Rome that will ultimately lead to his death. He is in the hardest of places, right? And now he's already gone through the first part of his trial, it seems, what we might call the grand jury phase, and he's going to write, you'll hear him say it, he endured that alone. He was in that courtroom alone. And so now he reaches out in this letter to his friends. Even the great apostle is in need of the company of true believing friends in this his darkest and final hour. You know, loneliness is hard. We're not built for it, especially in these hardest of times like what Paul's facing. It's no easier these days, I don't think. Um, Japan has gone so far as to appoint a position of a minister of loneliness as part of their government. Um, They're trying to reduce loneliness and social isolation among its residents as the country deals with rising suicide rates. During the month of October back in 2020, more Japanese died from suicide than had died from COVID-19 in that entire year. So you and me, we this thing called the church, we are built for community. And community rests on the shoulders of real friendships. We neglect this gift to our peril. 
friendship alongside the language of family is the language of the church in the New Testament. Jesus, listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So to be a friend of Jesus is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Right? I have a friend. She's amidst a long, like years-long battle with cancer. And she posts about her battle on Facebook and there's a refrain as I read her posts that comes up over and over and over. Um, it goes something like this, thank you for praying for me. I am so blessed to have so many who love me, pray for me, and care for me. And she is teaching me and all who read her blog and her life that hardship needs friendship. True, believing, praying, deep caring, friendship. It's not a place to be alone. And those kind of friendships are built during normal, everyday times, right? The vast majority of my friends, 670 Facebook friends, were friends BC, before cancer. Most didn't jump on and decide to befriend her just because she had cancer. No, we were friends BC, and we are friends TC, through cancer, and our gracious Lord willing, we will be friends AC after cancer. Right? Paul here is teaching us by his own life to love well and open our lives up to friends, especially in the church, especially here. Because days are coming when we too, every one of us, will desperately need friends. And we should be honest, right? Church is really kind of sorry if you don't have friends, right? There was a report in 2021 that identified what they called a male friendship recession with 15% of men saying they have no close friends. That's up from 3% in 1990, and that's a if my math is right, that's a five-fold increase in men who do not have friends in that period of time. The researcher of the study concluded that in 1990, nearly half of young men reported that when facing a personal problem, they would reach out first to their friends. Today, less than one out of four young men lean on their friends in tough times. Paul is modeling a different way. He is leaning hard on his friends while in those chains in that dungeon, in that prison, right? Do you have someone to lean on in tough times? Paul did. He, he lists by name seven friends just in these few verses, counting Timothy. Seven friends. Are you building friendships here, like in the church? Two-way friendships, giving and receiving, this gift that God's given to us, a friendship. Are you, are you even around enough to do that? Are you engaged enough for that even to be a possibility? Are you open to that? Are you praying for friends 
both ways for ones to have and for the ones you do have. You should be. You, you need to be because the days are coming when you are going to greatly need friends to stand with you and when your friends will need you to stand with them. Those days, they come for us all, right? And Paul urges us to build good, deep, true friendships in the church, right? That's the first thing that I glean from his closing thoughts to this book. The second thing I hope we can glean from Paul in these last words of his is when you do make friends, know that they will fail you, right? Some of the failures and disappointments that Paul faced from his friends in this section seem pretty legit, right? I mean, his aloneness in part was caused by friends traveling to serve God in other places. We read that Crescens had gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, Erastus remained to Corinth. Failing is too strong a word for what those friends have done. Um, but I'm sure Paul still really missed them in his hour of need. You know, there are a lot of reasons why friends fail to be there when we need them. Illness would be another example. If you look down in verse 20, a guy named Trophimus was parted from Paul just due to sickness. But the most prominent failing by a friend in Paul's account is that of a man named Demas. In verse 10, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas has deserted me. That had to be heartbreaking for Paul. And Demas deserted his friend because it says he was in love with this present world. Pastor John Piper writes powerfully about this. He says, there is a love for the world, this present age, the God-ignoring, God-denying, God-demeaning, God-distorting products of culture that is mutually exclusive with real deep love for Jesus. One wonders, he says, what was in Thessalonica? In love with this present world, it says, Demas had deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Was it a woman? Was it home? Perhaps he just grew up there. Was it a business offer? Was it just comfortably and safely far away from this utterly committed radical apostle Paul? He says, what we know is Demas did not leave in order to follow Jesus. He left Jesus to embrace the pleasures of the world. This happens to your friends, and some of them never come back. Could that be happening to you this season of your life? You know, that one little line Paul writes about Demas pokes us and forces us to ask, has the lure of this present world and the things of it gripped your heart in such a way that your sacrificial love for Jesus is dampened? You know, what has been called the saddest verse in this passage is verse 16. Paul says, at my first defense, his first part of the trial, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. All deserted me. Just feel that that weighs on Paul. All alone, facing a trial that could well end in capital punishment, and all his friends desert him. Now, if you've read the passage carefully, you might say, what about Luke? Because Paul, he's, he's Paul's, probably Paul's most faithful companion throughout his journeys. And Paul said, only Luke is with me back in verse 11. Where was Luke? We don't know. 
Maybe he was traveling like the others, or perhaps he was sick like Trophimus. Or maybe he too was afraid to come and stand with Paul before that Roman court. We don't know. We just know that Paul felt very much alone there in that courtroom. And you could also ask about all those brothers and sisters that he mentions at the end of the letter who were there in his city. Um, and this is, if you're expecting children, here's your na name list. Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the rest. Where were they? We don't know. But for reasons unknown, apparently they deserted Paul. Maybe they were afraid. I mean, there were death sentences being meted out. And Paul sensed his own death sentence was coming. And the charges lobbied against Christians were strange and strong. According to Pastor John Stott, he says Christians were accused of atheism because they wouldn't worship the emperor, of cannibalism because they spoke of eating Christ's body. Whatever the reason, in that Paul's needful moment, they all deserted him. But Paul also models this for us. He's going to show us that there is a friend, as Proverbs puts it, who sticks closer than a brother. Or as the book of Hebrews puts it, who will never fail nor forsake you. And Paul speaks about this steadfast friend of his in verses 17 and 18. He says, but the Lord, Jesus, that is, stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He's in a Roman court in, a, in an international city and he's declaring the message of Christ there. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus stood with Paul through it all. It was Jesus who gave Paul strength. It was Jesus who delivered him from that, from that trial, perhaps from a previous imprisonment even. And Paul had surety that Jesus would deliver him in the future and from every evil deed and bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom no matter what happened. So do you have this future hope, this sure future hope? No other friend can do this for you, but the Lord Jesus can and will if you will trust in him. But earthly friends, even good, true, believing friends, they will fail you, they will disappoint you, Paul teaches us, one way or another. And when they do, it's important to remember the last thing I want to underscore that we need to learn from Paul in this. We need to deal graciously with them when they do fail us, showing them mercy and forgiveness. Paul makes a powerful statement about one of his friends named Mark in verse 11. He says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. So a little backstory on Mark. Um, Back in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, he was a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas. They get to a fork in the road, and Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas, goes back to Jerusalem. That's all that's said in chapter 13. We just know that he leaves them and goes back. But a couple of pages later in Acts 15, they're choosing up their team to go again, and Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Paul says, no way. He abandoned us back and went to Jerusalem. He's not coming with us. And 
Paul and Barnabas get in such a kerfuffle over Mark that they end up splitting up. Paul and Barnabas split up over Mark. Paul was seriously distrustful of Mark. But here, perhaps 15 or so years later, Paul reinstates Mark without question and with affirmation. He's very useful to me for ministry. Paul is careful to use his last, last words to affirm Mark, to show grace to someone he had been estranged from. And it would have been, if you think about it for a minute, quite a reunion, right? So um, you've got the, the Apostle Paul there who wrote most of the letters that are contained in the New Testament. You've got Luke there who wrote one of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And then you've got Mark coming to join them who wrote another one of the Gospels uh, that record the life of Christ. These guys wrote the majority of the New Testament. That would have been quite a reunion. And Paul tells Timothy along with Mark, bring my parchments and my books. You wonder what was in those parchments, right? So Paul's careful to be gracious and restorative towards Mark in these last words. And then there's another group. Paul calls them the deserters in verse 16. Watch what he has to say about them. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. May it not be charged against them. He pleads for the ones who have deserted him to be forgiven. Uh, one, one of the things that I'm keenly aware of after having the privilege of pastoring at Northwake for over 30 years now is how terribly I have disappointed and outright failed many of you, uh, too many of you. Um, and at times, you know, it was simply an oversight. I just didn't know. Or perhaps I forgot. Um, but there are other times when I was afraid or I was uncaring, or I was horribly self-absorbed, or some mix of all three of those things, right? And I'm sorry. I have many regrets. You know, there are people who have left the church over my failings that they had to endure. Um, and that is a sorrow, a great sorrow to me. But the good news is, now you have a new pastor right? A good one. A, a really good pastor. Um, and guess what? He too will forget and overlook and be afraid and even self-absorbed at times, though I hope less than has been attributed to me. Um, and when that happens, and it will, I hope you will follow Paul on the path of Jesus and plead for his forgiveness before God, even as you forgive him too. Right? This, this is the way, right? Pastors disappoint. Parents fail us, as do spouses and friends of all shapes and sizes. They disappoint, they fail, they even desert us. And when that happens, the way of Jesus is the way Paul takes to forgive and to plead for their forgiveness before God. 
It is just like Jesus, who prayed on the cross for the very people who nailed him there, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And forgiveness is most happily given when it has been lavishly received, right? And in Christ, there is forgiveness greater than your, far, far greater than your sins. So church, forgive then as you have been forgiven. I ran across a story about a restaurant in Japan. It's called the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. And parts of it just kind of sounded like a picture of who, who, we, who you are in many ways and who we long to be as a church. And so I'd like you to watch the little video clip that I ran across. Um, it's mostly in Japanese. You're going to have to watch the subtitles closely. They're small subtitles. This is a shameless plug for sitting closer to the front, those of you who have bad eyesight. But uh, watch as best you can and, and smell for the church as you watch this video. 世界的にも認知症っていうのは誤解されてるとこがあるのかなっていうふうに思うんですけれども認知症になったら何もできなくなってしまうそうじゃなくて認知症の人たちと一緒に普通の暮らしができるそういった寛容な社会を作りたいという
as a forgiven people, surely we can show greater grace. Surely we can find grace for those who get our orders wrong and fail us terribly, and we can become a place, just like that restaurant aspired to, to foster open-minded caring and acceptance. Not as some restaurant experiment, but as a forgiven people. So I'm thinking maybe the Vine Project think tank folks around here, they've rebranded our small groups to grow groups. which, by the way, a grow group is a fabulous place to begin your friend's search at North Wake if you're not in one. But they've rebranded small groups to be grow groups. Maybe they'll welcome a new church name, the Church of Broken People, right? To remind us how much we need grace and how much we need to give grace to others. May we, may we learn to forgive our friends who fail us like Paul did and like Jesus our Lord, whom we follow. Make it so, Lord, make it so. The last verse, 22, Paul's last, last, last words, right? The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. It's interesting, the first part, the Lord be with your spirit, is singular, it's directed to one person, it's directed to Timothy, who was known in part for his timidity, And Paul asked the Lord to be with his spirit. It seems to me a strengthening word, which Timothy will need as he too deals with friends who fail and even worse, enemies who oppose him in the gospel message like Alexander the coppersmith that Paul just warned him about. But the second part is plural, and I think it's aimed at the church. Um, You could say, instead of grace be with you, we could say grace be with y'all. That's what Paul is saying here. How Paul knows how we need grace, right? Grace and mercy for our own failings and sins so that we might pass it on to those who fail us. Grace to receive and grace to to share. May the Lord make it so here at Northway. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Oh, good and kind Lord, we... um, We give you thanks for friendship, for our friends. And I know, perhaps me above all, I've been so strengthened and blessed by friends who are sitting in this room. Thank you. Lord, may you strengthen those friendships and protect those friendships and enrich those friendships. And Lord, make room in those friendships for those who are lonely here, those, those who've been here for a little bit and need friends, and some have been here a long time and need friends. Oh, Lord, may they find this gift of friendship here amongst your people. And Lord, perhaps above all, I pray for those in need of friendship with you, that you would extend through the grace that Jesus bought on the cross as he died for the sins of the world, would you extend it to those here who yet don't know to call you friend? But by Christ's good work, you've adopted, made adoption available into your family as a child and and a welcome into your company as a friend. Grant them faith even now to receive that 
delight in it and walk in it all of their days. Jesus, we pray this in your great name. Amen. Grace is most regularly lavished by those who have received it.